0: it's distazopod episode number three 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 mark of the beast i guess in this case a half sized beast a very small beast what do we have to talk about today i don't know i don't do any prep work here let me assure you it's going to be a great episode uh questions which i have answers to is there anything i want to sort of promote or put out there No, not really, other than I'm hearing a lot of inklings about a repeal of a law that made illegal and banned any use of mechs, mechanized combat suits. Uh, Now, as everybody knows in the world of Knights of the Slice, these have been strictly outlawed across the globe, across the interplanetary laws of commerce, and now it seems like it just might be going away. And I don't know what this means. There could be some pretty bad ramifications. I think there is good reason why we do not have uh, mechs. And we have laws on the books that prevent uh, private or public ownership of said mechs. Uh, It becomes a very real arms race between civilians and government officials alike. So uh, I'm personally in favor of a very restrictive process and uh, a, a banishing of all mechs. But it does seem like legislation is turning, and uh, at some point in the future, this might be a very grim question we have to answer for ourselves, so strap in for that. Uh, With that out of the way, let's tackle some questions. (music) To kick things off today, I'm going to start with our Discord questions. Our Discord is accessible only if you are a member of Patreon.com slash Jesse Stasio. So consider hopping on board and joining us. A lot of good stuff happening on the Discord. I'm actually going to reference it with another question. Uh, This is coming from Skywalker73, who uh, does not appear to be uh, off the bottle on this one. (laughs) Um, Anyone else think it would be a great idea to have a Night of the Slice fighting game like Marvel vs. Capcom? Darkstalker, Samurai Showdown, just animated 2D fighter. This would be epic. Would you consider making this? I love this idea, absolutely. And actually, there is fan art out there of a player select screen for such a game. I cannot for the life of me remember who made this fan image. It is incredible. I love it very much. Uh, No idea who made it. I don't think it was Drew Wise, who usually does pixel art. Uh, Might have been somebody else. But, um, yeah, like... uh, you know, I kind of veered off of fighting games as soon as they went 3D. Um, I think there's something incredibly charming and, incredib- and and just very fulfilling about the traditional 2D pixel art fighters. And I, I don't think my, my taste palette matured much beyond that. So if I had an unlimited budget and I got to pick and decide these things, yes, absolutely. I think this is a great, uh, great avenue for it. You can already sort of put together you know, which characters are going to have which abilities and which stats. Obviously, Rex is sort of your Ryu character, uh, just a, a sort of well-rounded uh, hero-type guy. Vaughn, I think, would be a sort of medium-light tank. Um, he could also be a sort of interesting sort of ken to Rex's Ryu. Uh, Cyber Mama as the Chun-Li-type character. Um, Verkill as kind of the M. Bison-type figure, but much more spindly and, and sort of quick and dangerous. Uh, I think the list goes on and on. Zangief, obviously, is cro Boy, this is a lot of fun, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, I, you know, it, it sounds great. It sounds like a lot of fun. I, of course, have aspirations to sort of do video game stuff, but largely that's not up to me as a sort of independent single person creator, right? The, the time and the money that goes into a project like that is pretty intensive and really my core job is selling figures and anytime I've kind of veered away from that uh, some portion of the business has suffered so um, you know I don't know it's really honestly it's not up to me it it would have to be bigger forces out there in the world that see this as a valuable IP that uh, demands expression within the realm of video games in order for this to kind of come to fruition. Now, my long gestating idea for a video game that actually would only require a, one or two people with some knowledge of uh, programming is a essentially my take on an obscure NES game called Nightshade. And Nightshade is kind of a point-and-click mystery game, but it's kind of an uh, open-world game, if you can believe it. They managed to cram all this into the NES cartridge. Um, you can play Nightshade on... The Switch Virtual Console right now, or whatever it's called, Switch Online, whatever the service is, uh, it is a fantastic game. It's a little perplexing, and um, kind of hard to beat without a strategy guide. But uh, it is an incredible game, and and like I said, it is open world. You can kind of access the entire map whenever you want to, and you go on little side quests and unlock little features. It's a really brilliant game, and I think that that is the template in which I would approach a Night of the Slice game, I think that the problem with gaming, especially with the advent of crowdfunding, is that people's ambition are way bigger than, uh, the feasibility of actually pulling off a game. And when you start raking in more money, you start deciding the game's going to be bigger and bigger and expand. And I think all of us, everyone listening to this, has lost money on Kickstarter backing a video game that never came to fruition, right? Uh, I've been burned probably a dozen times with games that I really liked and just never happened. So, I don't want that to be the fate or the first foray for Knights of the Slice into video gaming. I would like to do a very, very small, metered, measured, accomplishable game. And I think that using Nightshade as a sort of template for that would uh, be something achievable by a team of just a couple people. So, we'll see. It's, you know, again, it's not really up to me, but... I would love to see it happen, and uh, I do have a a full binder full of ideas and maps and what I would like to see in that game, so uh, I guess we just play the waiting game and and hope uh, somebody with some ducats comes along and thinks this is a good idea. And before you ask, no, this isn't something I would want to take to Kickstarter myself because crowdfunding is a huge revenue generator for me, and I typically need to make those efforts focused on the core toy line or the core card game uh it it would sort of be cannibalizing myself to go out f- fundraising for a video game when i have other figures and i have other things that are part of the core business that i need to sort of fund prior to an, a a whole new enterprise so um, let me just cut people off there next question on the discord from the robot assassin what are your favorite animals at the zoo and aquarium Do you have any favorite museums or museum exhibits? Um, So I had a spiritual episode with a skate at the Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut on a school class trip. There's a petting tank where you could pet these skates. And uh, one of them popped out of the tank. I've told this story before, but it... it, uh, You know, they have mouths on either side of their underside. And it made what I thought to be an attempt to communicate to me. Now, in all likelihood, this is just the air uh, being sucked into the mouths and the mouths moving, and that mimicking sounds like talking. But uh, it was a a pretty profound experience for a young kid to have, uh, so much so that I was branded with the the, uh, skate or ray mark upon my chest uh, when I joined the... uh, the Assassin's Brotherhood of the the uh, Ray Battlers, but that's, I mean, I've told the story a million times, so uh, so I, I definitely think I gravitate towards the aquatic features, but I do love all animals at a zoo. Um, primates I could watch endlessly. Uh, just the the whole experience of a zoo generally is is pretty great. I was thinking also, you know, a lot of people shit on Florida, and uh, rightfully so. As a former Florida man, I can, I can say that. It is usually deserved, but Uh, Florida with its climate is a really great place for zoos and there are some fantastic zoos there and you have the ability to have some exotic animals find a very comfortable climate for themselves uh, in that state so that's uh, I guess a plus one to the Florida column if anyone's keeping score out there. In terms of favorite museums I mean it's hard to beat the Met um The Peabody Museum in Connecticut, which I used to go to as a kid, is quite fantastic. It has this enormous painted diorama of uh, completely scientifically inaccurate dinosaurs and lots of beasts that should not be intermingling. (laughs) Um, It's kind of a confluence. They're just jamming together all these millions and millions of years of uh, evolution into one pretty impressive painting. Um, I always like going there and I always like seeing that, that... uh, big diorama painted on the wall it's it's uh, pretty incredible i'm going to talk a little bit about japan in a later question but i would also recommend the museums in Ueno. there's a park in Ueno, uh which is just next door to akihabara and um if anyone's going there you should definitely check out the museums that are in Ueno. they're pretty fantastic that's where i saw the alphonse muka uh, exhibit which was mind-blowing it just it brought me to tears it was an incredible incredible exhibit That also makes me think of something funny. Um, You know, I was in Japan. I got to see this incredible Muka exhibit. Um, I believe that they actually brought his frescoes intact to Japan and put them on display. If not, it was an incredible recreation of it. But it was such a uh, a moving experience, a high watermark in my life. And, um, you know, many years later, now on Instagram, I'm getting all these ads for this... This Alphonse Mucha walkthrough exhibit. Oh my god, I just realized i made a total mistake here. I've been saying Mucha. It was not Mucha. It was Klimt. Uh, it's okay. They they work pretty closely together. So, uh, easy mistake to uh, have happen here. But, meant to say Klimt. Uh, so, the exhibit for Klimt was incredible. Loved it. Captivating. Now on Instagram, I'm getting all these ads for a uh, essentially like a photo-projected adult daycare walkthrough of Klimt's work. And uh, you might have seen these for like Van Gogh, where it's just a big empty room, and they're sort of projection mapping the artworks all over the place. And there's really nothing to it. You're just, it literally, as Brad Tremell says, it's an adult daycare. Like, you're just going there to sort of waste some time. Um, I think there's a there's a sharp contrast and difference between how art is sort of uh capitalized here in the united states versus the exhibit that i saw there in japan here it's like a tourist gimmick over there it, they really seem to have some revelry for the artwork um so besides me naming the wrong artist uh everything else should be true and accurate Okay, heading over to patreon.com slash for our exclusive Q&A thread. First up is Gordon McKinnon-Hall, and we have a special guest answer from the craftsman himself. Very excited about that. Uh, Gordon asks, how do you gather good feedback on your artistic output so you can improve your craft? I feel like social media tends to be a great place to share stuff, but most feedback is just a like or something being called shit if you're unlucky uh the craftsman chimes in here and i think he he makes some good points so i'm happy to share this uh i'm not going to attempt to do the craftsman voice it's just not my thing i like this question okay sorry i tried it a little bit i like this question too says the craftsman social media is a tricky one there's a tendency to be too nice not critical enough or to critique for the sake of having something to say particularly in a public platform the best advice i've received on projects has come from talking directly to professionals who are out there doing the thing you're trying to accomplish someone like jesse d for example gives great advice seasoned with experience not based on anecdotes there's no end to the what about this idea questions these guys probably get but when you're already done the groundwork as it sounds like you have with artistic output and come at them with some substance you'll often get good feedback in return sorry for getting long-winded sort of just felt like i could relate to the question thank you craftsman feel free to chime in anytime by the way if you guys aren't following his patreon you're out of your mind it's uh pretty good steady crafting look it up follow him follow him on youtube he's making some great content out there and uh truthfully the 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 scourge of Z star seven on everyone's ears is largely the fault of the craftsman who uh inspired me to buy a teenage engineering pocket operator which led to me buying more more synths and forming the band and now torturing all of you so you can thank him for that um, Look, Craftsman is 100% on. I, I think that, um, one, Gordon already takes advantage of this, but our Discord is a great place, right? And Gordon is posting photos every day. He's out there working on the craft, and uh, he's steady crafting, if you will. And it's, it's fantastic. Like, I love seeing how Gordon has approved, and it seems like every picture he puts out there he's improving more and more but he is right there is a limit to social media platforms in that you're either just kind of getting a like or you're not or you're getting sort of negative feedback which is you know pretty bad and discouraging um what i would say is your best opportunity is going to be face to face with peers and now i know gordon does a local life drawing class go out for a drink with everybody afterwards just invite everybody pick a place nearby go sit down trade sketchbooks, looks look at other people's artwork, even if there's no professional critique going on there, even if you don't, you know, you don't have any advice for anyone else, that simple process is incredible, and it's going to make you a better artist just by vibes alone, right? Just getting in the zone with other people, uh, you know, life drawing is fantastic, but it can be a little stuffy, it could be a little clinical and impersonal, so I always try to go out and you know, breathe the same air as people afterwards. I think that that is a crucial part of becoming a better and better artist. The other thing that I think could be a massive benefit for somebody like Gordon is going to Artist Alley at even a tiny little local convention. Um, More often than not, like, a a good sizable show uh, will have an Artist Alley, and, you know, there are touring comic artists that just grind out on the road all the time. Rack is one of them. Like, uh, you know, our good friend Robert sets up at so many different shows. So I think, honestly, just going and buying something from these folks and and saying, hey, could you take a look at my sketchbook? I'm, I'm trying to get better at my craft. Um, I think that would be hugely beneficial uh, to somebody in Gordon's position that's putting in a lot of work and has a lot of sketches to show somebody. The other thing I would advise is... Everybody that's coming to Toy Pizza Con should absolutely bring a sketchbook. Bring some of your work. Show everybody that's attending. See if you can corner Matt Dowdy for a couple minutes. Pick his brain. See if David White can take a look at your sketchbook. Get these guys to maybe do a doodle in your sketchbook. But, you know, Toy Pizza Con is not just about selling exclusives or, you know, the commercial aspect of it. It is also about the community aspect of it. So, I would certainly encourage that. Um, Final thing I would say is find out if there's a drink and draw or ink and drink or drawing club that meet at bars in your local area. There's one here in Beacon. I know Irwin Papa runs a great one in LA. I know there's one in Chicago. Like there are sort of bar nights that uh focus on this too and I think that's another great resource. And again, part of the process is just getting ingrained and getting familiarized with other artists and practicing the craft together. Uh, the critiquing and the, the sort of bouncing ideas off of people, that will come in time. The first step is kind of establishing that rapport and getting familiar with people. I think sometimes that can be kind of the hardest part. I would also say, uh, personally, you know, having run many life drawing classes and, and sort of uh, offered my limited understanding and expertise to the people that attend the classes and, and sort of giving critiques and help them, I got to say, Gordon, you're on the right path. Uh, you know, just keep doing what you're doing and that is going to produce a lot of results. Uh, you just may not be able to see them up so close and at this moment in time. And for anyone that is just starting off on this path that Gordon has been on for a few years and they really want to get into drawing and get better, the single biggest advice that I gave Gordon that he has taken to heart is going to life drawing classes. This is the fundamental first base of any career or aspirations in art. You just got to do it. The human anatomy is something all of us need to learn. And once we do, it informs every other aspect of design, illustration, cartooning, regardless of what the pursuit is. Having an understanding of the body and its symmetries and its ability to fold in on itself is the key to the universe as far as I'm concerned. So if you're just about to embark on being creative, that is the number one thing you need to do find a local life drawing class if you're not sure where to start find the nearest community college the nearest school uh, you know of higher learning uh, it, undoubtedly these universities and these these community colleges will have something along these lines so uh, that is square one which Gordon is now a few years down the path of and has really shown uh, pretty remarkable achievements there. Next up, our good friend Lance Tomimoto is exiting the Tomimoto zone and entering the Japan zone. He's going there for the first time next week. He wants to know, uh, Toy Cats is closed in Akihabara. Are there any other must-hit stores in the area? Thanks. So as I mentioned before, I like to stay in Ueno because it is a walkable distance from Akihabara, which anybody like me is going to want to spend quite a bit of time in Akihabara um, uh, Toy Cats, uh, I don't think it was in Akihabara, they, they might have moved and had a new store, but I would say look up Toy Cats Ishii on Instagram and just message him, I believe he moved and has a new store, um, and I, I have found Ishii to be just a incredibly warm, welcoming, very friendly guy, you can tell him I sent you, and, um, just ask him where you know, what what he's doing now. I think he has a new store. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it used to be near... I remember we walked from Broadway Nakano to go to his store. Uh, but I know that store closed, and I think he moved. So I would reach out to him. He might also be set up at shows or markets uh, that I don't know about. And I really think if you're a Micron- man, Micronauts fan, you know, talking to Ishii and, and potentially getting to see his store or collection is an absolute must-do for sure. I would also recommend, um, you got to go to Nakano Broadway, that's a no-brainer, you got to spend a lot of time there, you got to go to Mandrake. Um, I think it's also, it's incredibly crucial to have non-toy stuff built into your trip, that's why I pointed out Ueno, the, the big park there, and also the museums that are there, I think that's really worthwhile to do. Um, try to pepper your day with non-nerd things because it's an incredibly cultured country with just unique stuff you do not see anywhere else. And, uh, you know, maybe stay at a Ryokan one night. Definitely take a bullet train to some of the outlying areas. Um, you know, don't... You will get very burned out very quickly because Akihabara, there's so much going on. There's so many buzzing lights. There's so much excitement. Uh, it will leave you feeling pretty exhausted. So... Build into your trip a lot of non-toy stuff. Go see the temples, go see the fortresses. like there's there's so much more to it than just the stuff we're into. And I think my problem is I get uh, very flustered very quickly by overindulging on uh, all the things I love and it leaves me feeling pretty worn out. So to avoid that, go see a movie while you're there. you know, go go to anything that is the opposite of nerd pursuits. Um, I would also say go and watch all of the Toy Pizza Japan Trip videos. I think there's probably about a dozen videos we made featuring different stores, different places we went. Um, I would highly recommend that. I always tell people go to Yodabashi Camera Stores and go to department stores. Department stores over there still have pretty impressive toy aisles. And you will find stuff there that you won't find at sort of, uh, you know, the more nerdy adult toy collecting stores. So, uh, Yodabashi Camera fantastic department store chain. There's one in pretty much every city. So you can go and uh, check that out as well. But yeah, I always fall back to those, that playlist on toy pizza. I think it's the best sort of block of programming we ever did. And uh, I think it still holds up largely those stores that we kind of highlight. They're out there and it's, uh, you know, it's a hell of a lot of fun. I think you're going to have a great time and, uh, you know, I wish you a safe trip. Next up, Philip Barrara playing with my Adam Boy figure makes me, sorry, takes me back to playing with my Jazz Wars Mega Man, specifically the figure you were a part of. It all comes full circle beautifully. Has there been a time when moving to a new place slash environment helped your creativity as well as mental health? Um, so briefly, the name Adam Boy itself is obviously a nod to Astro Boy. Uh, Astro Boy is the blueprint for Mega Man. I don't know how many people Know this or realize this, but it was kind of being lifted wholesale from Adam Boy. I-, I think also that's a fact that's kind of missing in modern adaptations of Mega Man. Specifically, a few years ago they had this Mega Man cartoon. Um, God, I can't remember the company that was doing it. They were out of uh, out of Canada, but it completely missed the mark because Astro Boy is a boy. That is the the defining element of him. He is sort of naive and childish and heroic, uh, but, you know, doesn't understand the larger world in many respects, and you have to sort of coddle him like a child. And thusly, Mega Man is the same way, at least in these sort of early NES games. And I, I think that when you change Mega Man's proportions too much, you sort of lose that. Now, granted, things like Mega Man NT and EXE. Those are more teenage Mega Man. I think you can make the argument for Mega Man X as well. That may be a teenage version of the boy robot. But I think it's crucial if you're going to tell a classic Mega Man story or you're going to make a product of Mega Man, you have to understand this boy-like, childlike idea about Astro Boy and in turn, the Blue Bomber. And that is a good sort of lens in which to view how you portray this character, whether it's in 3D or in sculpted form or in 2d animation and i think that's something that's kind of been lost or missed or people just didn't understand frankly um to the second part of this statement has there been a time when moving to a new place environment helped your creativity as well as mental health absolutely i mean i'm a much better more stable more creative person living up here in the snow covered mountains than i was when i lived in the city but before i lived in the city I lived in a tiny, uh, you know, tiny, tiny one room place where I had to sort of paint on the floor uh, when I wanted to do paintings or drawings, uh, you know, had no space to speak of. When I moved to New York City, I was staying in a loft above Jesse Falcon's living room. Uh, The ceiling was so low you could not stand up. You had to sort of crawl up there and crawl into bed. And throughout all these places, I produced things. Now, were they great? Were they works of art? No, but I kept up at it, and I think in some ways adversity does inspire art, Uh, so you shouldn't take for granted when you're in a tight spot, or you don't have closet space, or you don't have a workshop at your disposal. Hopefully you get to those positions in life, and then you're able to expand your craft all the much easier. But in many respects, that's also when artists become soft and and start repeating themselves and and stop putting out anything interesting into the world. So, you know, art through adversity is, is a good thing to lean on, but absolutely, if you can get yourself to a new place where you can breathe a little bit more, you have a little more space, it definitely helps. But I would say, you know, do your best to have any kind of artistic output, whether it's just one page in a sketchbook a day, you know, even if life is not going the way you want it to and you don't have the square footage you'd like, it's still important to kind of grind away at that in many respects. I will say also uh, to agree with the earlier sentiment, uh, having started my career uh, working on Mega Man figures and to now, nearly 20 years later, I think it might be 20 years exactly, actually, uh to now be doing my own little nod and a wink to the Blue Bomber. It just feels right. It feels like a a very nice bookend to, you know, 20 years spent in this uh, industry. And I'm glad it connected with so many people. I didn't want to be too too sort of uh, uh, mawkish or, you know, create a literal version of this character. But uh, I am happy with the figure of it i do think this month sorry this year of the afotm club is going to be the best ever i'm packing up and nearly done with the march and april figures i think people are going to really really like these two and uh i just feel like we're firing on all cylinders so it's nice to go back to where it all started to imagine myself as a kid again with some cernet clay just making a Mega Man and baking it in the oven and it, it crumbling almost instantly You know, it's kind of nice to get back to where it all started and and to keep your eyes on that little fire you had when you were that age. You know, I'm trying my best to preserve that fire and infuse it with every creation I put out there. And uh, I'm thankful that people, you know, appreciate that and, uh, and receive that notion. What a joy it is to be comprehended. Next up, Brett Barnacle. what's your belief in the paranormal, such as ghosts or spirits? If you are a believer, do you have any experiences you could share? Hope all is well. Thank you. Um, I think I've talked about it before, but I I believe I grew up in a haunted house. Uh, My house was built, my childhood home was built, I want to say in the late 1700s. That might have been hyperbole, but uh, I believe that there was some level of the paranormal or phenomenon I can't understand happening in that house as there was an apartment up in the attic and my bedroom was situated under the stairs of that attic and now nobody lived up there for most of the time but I would very distinctly hear and feel footsteps walking up those steps and shaking my bed uh, with nobody sort of home nobody occupying that upstairs uh, bedroom etc, etc. That, that kind of leaves an impression on you, for sure. Um, I do think also, like, this is all perception. So there could be spirits, there could be ghosts, there could easily not be, and I would sort of be open to uh, that being in actuality as well. I, I, I'm not sort of tied to this. I think, largely, probably about 90% of super, nominal, super paranormal phenomenon can probably be explained by physics and rules of the universe we do not yet comprehend or understand. Especially with reading The Three-Body Problem and all of its uh, abstracted thinking in terms of four dimensions and unfolding and things like that, it kind of makes you realize like we understand very little about what's happening on the quantum level of reality and a lot of this stuff could very well be phenomenon of that nature. It's on a such a tiny scale we can't sort of pick it up or detect it or understand it and and especially if it's extra-dimensional if it's not of our sort of 3d plane of existence um so i would say i don't discount the spiritual aspect of these things but i also know i don't comprehend them so there might be a very rational explanation that we just don't have the tools to kind of comprehend or understand but i would definitely say that The world is much more than we perceive it in a dry way with our very basic underdeveloped senses and our basic underdeveloped unlocked brains. So I I think that there is much more out there in the world than we currently have the capacity to understand. Next up from Jonathan Ortiz. He's got a great question here. What is your favorite spring break memory? Now, I don't think I ever took a traditional spring break. I certainly didn't when I was in college, because I went to college uh, pretty late in life. And uh, I was a commuter, and I had two jobs at the time. So there was no, like, I'm going to Cabo or things like that for for me. <laughs> just wasn't in the cards. Uh, so a typical, like, high school spring break would just be me playing Final Fantasy nonstop all day long while I was off for a week. Um... Uh, What I will say, though, is I think actually this spring break is probably my favorite. I have my two nieces here. I don't get to spend a lot of time with my family. Uh, And we're not really doing much of anything. We're just kind of hanging out. But these are tiny creatures that I saw into the world when they were born. And uh, the fact that they are now uh, 20 and 18 is mind-boggling for me. And the fact that they're fully fleshed-out adults... And you can have conversations with them. And they they like stuff. And we have things in common. And we watch Dune together. Like, that is kind of what it's all about, right? Um, that's as good as life gets. You, you, you sort of get to grow up alongside other creatures. And, uh, you know, come to know them as adults. The fact that we went to an arcade and, uh, you know, they gravitate towards playing Pac-Man and Centipede. Games that are... <laughs> even by, you know, when I was sort of going to arcades, seemed archaic and completely uh, toast and boring compared to something like Street Fighter 2, they're into it. You know, I think there's something really wonderful. It kind of marks the passage of time. It, it, it's a consistent thing that kind of grounds you and gives you some reality to, uh, you know, a world that really feels quite overwhelming and crazy a lot of the time. So, I would say this one has been pretty fantastic and, you know, um, I do not fear for this younger generation. I think that they're they are made out of much stronger stuff than my generation and, and every generation beyond that. And they are facing realities that I never had to. I, I had a very comfortable upbringing for sure, uh, as did most of us. Um, and I think that these kids really, they have no choice but to take the reins and do dramatic things and change the way things are done. And uh, I have an extreme amount of hope for that. I see it within them. They, uh, you know, they just have to deal with reality in a way that we never had to. We were very sheltered and comforted. And, um, you know, it it, uh, gives me hope. Final question is here from the Nobby Wood. He wants to know what are your thoughts on web comics? Would you consider using this route to publish your comics since there is no printing cost? Um, so, uh, to answer the former part first, uh, I'm kind of experimenting with that with the Jagged Age. Now, I, I do think I'm going to do a physical copy of the Jagged Age manga just because I really like having uh, physical copies. Um, but I think, you know, in some ways I'm, I'm experimenting with this as a webcomic first that's available only on Patreon. While the project got off to a very rocky start, the initial idea was that I would be pretty much uh, uh, every week be releasing about a page worth of this webcomic with, um, you know, some narration as well. Uh, but because we had to sort of switch artists um, halfway through, uh, that hasn't been a a sort of idea I was able to visualize completely. So now that Jules is on board and uh, plugging away at the manga, utilizing Reynosa's, um sort of uh, thumbnails and layouts, I think we will get back to that, and there'll be a much more consistent experience with reading The Jagged Age as a webcomic. Um, now, me personally, uh, the approach I'm taking here is... That I'm using the visuals from the comic and then extrapolating that with probably about a paragraph of text to explain what's happening in these paragraphs um, and to give additional background information and things like that. That is not a real traditional webcomic experience, but um, one that I kind of want to do to help me process what the eventual text balloons will be in the final print version of this manga. So a bit of a, you know, odd... Way to approach it, but uh, that that is kind of the experiment as it is. Um, I can't say I've read a lot of web web comics personally. Um, I do like seeing them. I do follow a couple Patreon creators that have them, and I'm always happy to sort of uh, come across them. But I, I wouldn't say it's something I seek out. I don't know that it's a form that has ever really found a consistent sort of groove. I would say the best web comic I ever read uh, was by Hamlet Machine. And for those not familiar with her work, she's extremely, extremely talented artist. Uh, she does sort of erotica in a with a sort of manga flair. And um, now, you know, her work is not going to appeal to everybody, certainly not the puritanical listeners, but um, it's very, very good. And it's so good, it sort of elevates itself beyond the, the trappings of the genre. I'm not a erotica indulger. I don't read any of it. But her work was that good, I was compelled to sort of see what it was all about. And she really built a a uh, pretty amazing webcomic and a, a good way of sort of digesting it. Um, so, you know, outside of that, I don't have a ton of experience there, and I think I'm I'm kind of a physical print type of person. So, you know, I, I think in some respects, I'm kind of figuring out the answer to this question as well in real time. That being said, I have been enjoying the Nobby Woods webcomic, which uh, I think he just showed the first... Page or two of, and you guys absolutely should check him out on Patreon. It's well worth it. Uh, Before we go today, I wanted to kind of think about something in real time, and uh, I thought it might be an interesting experience here. So I was thinking to myself, you know, this world is littered with reboots, and everything is recycled and rehashed, and we have stopped producing new ideas as a society, and certainly more acutely so in pop culture. Uh, But with the new trailer out for the newest incarnation of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, uh, I find myself not having the same sort of reaction to Turtles being rebooted once again as I do to nearly everything else in the pop culture landscape. And I'm curious why that is. And I think what I've narrowed it down to is the fact that when I first got experienced or sort of came to to sort of uh, came across Ninja Turtles, let's say, in the wild. Um, It was the toy line. I went to KB Toy at the West Farms Mall and there was a turtle figure of a line I'd never seen before wearing a red bandana with cool size and this beautifully vibrant backer card and all these weird creatures on the back and I had never heard anything about Ninja Turtles prior to that point. So I grabbed this single solitary, solitary figure there. It was Raphael. Um, and that began my journey into the world of Turtles. Now, uh, obviously, pretty soon after that, the Saturday Morning Cartoon debuted. Uh, the, I, w- I would come across the Mirage comics at flea markets and tag sales. Uh, that group, you know, that sort of adaptation or I guess that source material, scaring me. It was it was obviously very edgy and uh, well above my uh, young, tender years. Uh, but then also, the Archie comic, which I did read. I think the first comic I ever bought with my own money was the first appearance of Leatherhead in the Archie TMNT comics. Uh, and then also, you know, you have uh, the toy line, and, as I already mentioned, and... The cartoon, as I already mentioned, so right off the bat, there were four conflicting sources of Ninja Turtles in my life, um, and I kind of liked all of them. Again, I was a little scared of the Mirage uh, offerings, but they were all radically different from one another. There was no real consistency in the look or the styling or anything like that, and these were four pretty major components of a intellectual property that were widely available on the marketplace at the same time. And then a few years later, you get the live-action film, which also was a a pretty crucial part of, uh, you know, the rise of Ninja Turtles, and also a pretty radical departure in many respects. So there was never, like, a one consistent vision of Ninja Turtles uh, that I digested. It was always these conflicting different views and different proportions and different... Uh, You know, did they have eyes or not? Did they, you know, uh, did they all have red bandanas or did they all have multicolored bandanas? Um, And I think part of that, you know, in many respects, Ninja Turtles was a modern franchise in many respects because adaptation and reimagining was part of the game from the get-go, right? Like, it did not reach its widest audience with the Mirage comics, certainly not. And so it had to be reinterpreted uh, many times over to reach its biggest audience. The Playmates uh, toys and the Playmate sculptors were creating a lot of the characters that were then owned by um, the sort of, uh, that may not be true, but the producers of the cartoon, or, or rather the IP holders, as it were. There's not a lot of uh, intellectual properties that can can claim that pedigree, where you have actual toy designers sort of coming up with things like Ray Filet, and then those being integrated into, say, the Archie comics or uh, other things like that. Truly like a, a unique genesis of a brand. It's also worth noting those early days featured two key creative people in small ancillary roles, but still pretty significant roles that would go on to really inform me as a designer, and as an artist, and as a creator. Uh, One of those being Peter Chung of Eon Fux... Eon Fux. Yeah, that's... Okay, that's a Freudian slip right there. Uh, Eon Flux, um, he storyboarded the intro, which is an incredible piece of animation, still holds up to this day, as well as did a lot of the early character designs. Um, uh, Peter's influence on my work is obviously, you know... Uh, uh, omnipresent and and easy to pick up on, and uh, he is actually on Patreon as I've mentioned before. You guys should be following him. Although he posts very rarely, when he does, it is pretty incredible stuff and uh, worth checking out. So you have uh, Peter Chung contributing to the early visual language of how the turtles appear, uh, you know, in two D animation, and then you also have a young. 17, 18-year-old kid getting hired by Varner Studios and his first project being the Ninja Turtles toy line for Playmates. That kid is Phil Ramirez, friend of the show. Phil Ramirez, of course, would go on to be one of the architects of Marvel Legends and uh, did a ton of incredible sculpts for the very early Toy Biz X-Men figures. Obviously, the influence of both the Unflux, Peter Chung's work, and the early Toy Biz uh, figures. I mean, I owe an enormous debt to both of those things. So I think in some respects also, a lot of cartoons previously were just handed to lifers that did cartoons. You know, uh, if you, if you watch any Toy Galaxy, uh, programming, which by the way, Toy Galaxy on Patreon, you can follow them. Um, you know, when Dan goes and looks at all of these cartoon series, It's all the same people being cycled through, both in writers and also voice actors. These guys did, you know, dozens and dozens of projects, sometimes stretching back to the 60s and 70s. You know, there's people that worked on the Star Trek animated series that were still working in the early 90s on a lot of these toy-slash-Saturday morning cartoon hybrids. With Ninja Turtles, I'm sure there were veterans that continued over on the production and things like that, but you see these... Arturs being attached to the project at very, very crucial moments that kind of elevated this into something different. And again, we can point to Peter and Phil as people that contributed in pretty small ways, but ultimately pretty significant ways. Um, For this new Mutant Mayhem adaptation of Ninja Turtles, they're obviously taking a a page out of the playbook for Into the Spider-Verse, which is smart to do because that's a a hugely profitable movie. It's a very good film, I, I think. I, uh, it's extremely watchable and pleasing and interesting and, uh, you know, definitely changed the approach to the aesthetics of animation. And so this new Mutant Mayhem has adapted some of that. It, it has kind of a similar hand-drawn look to that. Uh, but I think smartly so, they brought in young artists, and, and some of these people probably were not around when I was around for the genesis point of, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But mainly I would point to Woodrow White and Woodrow is the son of Wayne White. Very difficult name to say. Uh, I've met Wayne White very briefly at a signing. He's a, a, an incredible artist. There's a really great documentary you can watch about him and his art. It's called, I want to say it's called, uh, beauty is embarrassing. Um, He is a renowned painter these days, but he was one of the main artists of Pee Wee's Playhouse and contributed a ton to the aesthetics of that show, which, if nothing else, that show is, uh, you know, it has incredible aesthetics and and sort of design taste. So Wayne's son Woodrow is also a pretty phenomenal artist in his own right and was picked up to uh, do a lot of the heavy lifting on character designs, backgrounds, things like that for... Uh, this new Ninja Turtles movie. I assume not just by himself. There are probably lots of other talented people I'm just not aware of. But um, the the artwork looks like Wayne's paintings. And I think it was a super smart choice to appoint a young Artur, uh in the position that, that uh, Woodrow was in. And I think um, it's made all the difference. But I think the most interesting part of this TMT relaunch... Is that once again Phil Ramirez back in the sculptor seat, doing the uh, four main turtle characters and probably some other ones we haven't seen yet. Uh, but this time, Phil is doing it digitally. They, I think, Playmates shared some screen caps, um, and I—that's I, just such a great, nice circle, right? Phil's back to doing that. There's a new iteration of Ninja Turtles for a property that has only ever been relaunched and rebooted simultaneously from its genesis point, um, it just, it all seems right to me. Now, this also makes me think of a, a sort of schism point, and apologies, maybe I talked about this on a previous uh, The Stazopod, I really cannot remember, but um, I think I've mentioned before this break of aesthetics that happened in the early 90s, specifically around 1992. Uh, prior to that, you had pretty much all these toy lines uh, featuring high detail, grotesque things. A lot of this is holdovers from the 70s. A lot of it is a reaction to Garbage Pail Kids. Uh, and that was really the, the aesthetic of toy design up until 92. It was... You know, think of like Muckman, and think of the entire line of Toxic Crusaders. Like everything kind of had a grotesque, melting sort of texture to it. And I loved it. I thought it was a wonderful aesthetic. I think in many ways it also probably owed a lot to the monster movies of the 60s and 70s. Um, But it all kind of hit a wall and stopped. And those aesthetics were completely dispersed. And that wall, in 92, was the debut of Batman the Animated Series, which everything had a clean line. This was a throwback to the Fleischer Superman uh, animated series from the 40s. It was sort of purposefully mimicking that style. And so everything was more angular. Everything was smoother. Everything was relatively symmetrical. And if you look at Toy Lines post, let's say, 93, because it takes a while to play catch-up... Um, The smoothness of the Batman the Animated Series sort of changed everything. Now, there were, of course, going to be outliers that revitalized that gory 70s movie monster vibe. You can point to uh, Todd McFarlane for probably single-handedly keeping that alive and going with McFarlane Toys. But you really see design dramatically shift to cleaner lines, animation, things that, that were sort of cheaper to draw. And if you go through the history of Ninja Turtles and you kind of look at the more recent iterations from, let's say, the past 15 years, they are almost all incredibly smooth and detailless, right? Sometimes that works in their favor, sometimes not. But it does seem like Phil is getting back to uh, a more textured approach with his sculpts. But also, I I think, you know, the film itself has a lot of texture. It has a lot of... uh, you know, pencil lines and ink splats and things like that. So, uh, you know, it's always interesting to see how the visual language of these things kind of morphs and reacts to phenomenon within the culture and then kind of contracts and, and, and comes back. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this sort of permutates beyond this. But in any case, um, I don't know how in-depth in I'm going to get with Ninja Turtles... As a collector, I'll probably pick up, you know, a couple of the uh, the Four Turtles. I, I don't feel particularly compelled to go into that. It, it hasn't been a line since I was a little kid. I have not collected Ninja Turtles with any sort of fervor. Um, you know, I pick up a figure here and there. I think NECA is doing wonderful things with their sort of Archie figures and their Mirage figures. Um, so I do think, you know, those are figures I'm likely to pick up. I did recently get the, uh, Man Ray figure, and that's a character I love quite a bit, obviously because of my, uh, you know, uh, experience with Rays and Skates and, and their verbal communication towards me. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, I, I, I know there's people complaining about the new Ninja Turtles. It seems fine to me. It seems par for the course. In fact, this seems like a relatively more interesting iteration of a property that has always been iterated on. There, I, I don't think you can claim there is a definitive version. I think that there are great things about the Mirage series, but there are also great things that the cartoon did. There were great des- choices that they made uh, in order to get this out to a bigger mass audience. So I guess it's a sort of property that's always been mutating, and that's pretty fitting for those green boys. And with that, I think we're done for today. Thank you for listening to my ramblings. Uh, I'm going to leave us with a song from this new band everybody's talking about, Zed Star 7. They're going to play us out. And the only thing left to say is pizza out.